Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about Take That Games. We're talking about games that maybe you get to stab your best friend in the back, and maybe he doesn't forgive you for 10 years. Who knows what's going to happen? And we're talking to Kurt Covert, one of the one of the geniuses, the masterminds behind a lot of Take That Games from Smirk and Dagger Games. Kurt, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Now, Kurt, is that your real name? Is Kurt Covert your real name? Like, come on. Like, it's just, I, it just makes too much sense. I am often asked. I am often asked that question. And yes, that is my given name, Kurt Covert. Gotcha. So from birth, you were destined to make backstabbing, take that games where you covertly you know, lure your friends in, huh? So it would seem. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool, man. Well, hey, real quick, before we get into the topic, tell listeners who you are, how you got into the industry, how you got into game design, all that good stuff. Sure. So, uh, let's see. Well, first of all, I'm I'm the owner of Smirk and Dagger Games. I'm also, and for the longest time, I was like really the only designer of games at the company. Um, but of course, now nowadays, I also accept uh, you know stuff from the outside. But um, I kind of got into it like I think most people do. I was just like an avid board gamer, um, and my very first design project was. Um, creating expansion products for other people's games yeah you know like i was a big fan of like dragon uh, quest um so i created oh no dungeon quest dungeon quest um and um so i created my own expansion for it and had a great time it was just for me and my friends and um tom jolly's whiz war i created some extra cards for that and um uh then at one point i sunk like two years into a an expansion project, there was this uh, there's this game. It was called uh, let's see Star Trek uh, Red Alert, and it was a um, a collectible game, uh, kind of like X Wing is now, where it was like ship to ship combat, but there are little cardboard discs you know, flip them end over end to advance mm. your ships. Yeah. Well, it was a cool game, and like I said, it was collectible. So the base game came out, and we were all waiting for like the next expansion, and they canceled the product line and it turns out all of a sudden they had the star Wars license and the star Trek license and Warner brothers said, uh, no paramount said, no, you, you no, you cannot do that. So they, they had to choose. And so they killed the star Trek line. And so the designer was so, uh, you know, upset. He ended up on the forums sharing all the hard data for what was coming in the expansion. It's like, well, I'm a graphic artist. I could go ahead and make those look exactly like they should have. So I did. And then I shared it out to like everyone on the forums who was like a diehard for the game. And then we started creating our own stuff. Uh, So we created a total of two new expansions on top of the one they officially were going to release. And it just became like a big fan love fest. And I was kind of like, you know, marching things forward with the, with the group. Um, At some point, I think it was one of my friends was like, dude, you just spent like two years spending like all your time creating this thing. Why would, why didn't you just make up your own game and try to sell it? (laughs) I never even thought of it. I was like, 
oh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I guess I'll think about that. Mm-hmm. Well, so I ended up trying to do that and quickly realizing that building on someone's brilliance is much easier <laughs> than starting at square zero and trying to come up with something unique. And it is hard. Yeah. And I did, I did a horrible job. My first two, maybe three games were like just boring as paste. They, it was like every single one of them basically had suffered from the same problem. It was like four player solitaire. Hmm. There was no player interaction. There wasn't anything that got us, you know, playing together. And I just hated them all. They looked beautiful. They, I hated them all. <laughs> so. I was, I mentioned I was a graphic artist at that time. Well, I worked for marketing agencies. So I was doing like the promotional planning for like, you know, Jameson Irish whiskey and a whole bunch of other like fortune 500 brands. And I was like, all right, let me approach this. Let me take a little a trip into fantasy land where sure. I open a game company. First of all, I know as a marketer, like what's my right to be, how do I distinguish myself from, Game companies are already out there doing this for years. Why does anyone care what I have to say? So I started thinking about, all right, what games do I really love? What what could I really bring to the table different than someone else? And my God, even at that time, I absolutely loved backstabbing games. Yeah. Um, and Tom Jolly's Whiz War was, I think, I, I credit him in that game with setting the path towards this crazy land of, you know, stab your buddydom that I, I landed in because I so loved his game and games that are, that, you know, had that same kind of hook to it. And I think the reason I just gravitated towards them was because it creates this emotional upheaval in people as they play. It's the, it's the highs and the lows of that whole idea. So, um, First of all, if you're like planning someone's demise, like the the little smile like curls at the corner as you start like seeing your opportunity to crush them, yeah. you know, you, you get all giddy and then you let them have it and then you laugh at their demise and they curse your name and they you know, clench their teeth and shake their fist. And all of that creates memorable moments at the table. And I think that's what I absolutely loved. And so I said, OK, that's it. I, I took a, a page out of uh, other game companies that actually planted a flag that didn't just say, oh, we make fun games for everyone, which right. a lot of a lot of people did at that time. Um, but I looked at um, Twilight Creations and all their zombie games. like They just did horror. I looked at um, Looney Labs and their kind of hippie vibe. I looked at cheap-ass games, and they did, you know, you already have the dice and the pawns. Get a really cheap game, and you can get 10 of them instead of one. I was like, all of those people stood for something. So I was like, cool, that's where I'm going. I'm going to stand for something. So I planted the flag. I came up with the, the, the name Smirk and Dagger Games before I had any games in the line. And I said, okay, now that I know who I am and why I am, what is the, trying to diffuse the problem I started with, how do I have the most player interaction possible at the table and deliver this fun of backstabbing and with that in mind my first game hex hex was born in like two weeks and here we are <laughs> yeah definitely now how long was, was the process was that process like how long you been doing this so i have a 
officially been in business for 15 years now. Yeah. Um, and I track my my launch date to it's the date the games first arrived at the warehouse. And that was October 31st, Halloween Day, my <laughs> um, of, um, of 2003. Yeah. So Very cool. There's, wow, there's a lot of things you, you, I want to unpack there. Now, one thing Jamie Stegmar has actually talked about on, on this show in the past is when you're getting started, start with expansions. Don't don't try to like come up with all your all your own brand new ideas. Go to other people's brilliance, like you said, and start trying to make expansions. Not necessarily to even get them published. Although feel free to you know submit them to a publisher. Who knows it might get published. But it just sure. it helps you ease into the uh, game design space a little bit easier than just staring at the blank page, so to speak. And so I think there's Absolutely. a lot of a lot of value in that. And that's actually how a lot of people got started with like HeroScape. HeroScape died. And yep. kind of like with your you know, situation with Star Trek, HeroScape died, and all these guys like Colby Dowk and Jerry Hawthorne, they loved it, and they wanted to keep the thing alive, and so they were on, you know, on the forums and all that stuff, and that turned into their own careers in game design. And so it's really cool how so many people from different spaces and different uh, ideas and different games that died have come into the hobby to have some really cool companies and, and create some really cool games. Now, what are some of the games that Smirk and Dagger has done, just in case people, maybe they don't know your company, but they know the games. Sure. Um, so let's see. Um, well, Cutthroat Caverns is probably one of our, our most popular, uh, well-known games. Um, but uh, Hex Hex, Run for Your Life, Candyman uh, were some of the early ones. Uh, more recently, Nevermore, Dead Last, uh, Paramedics Clear was uh, just last year. And of course, um, uh, launching uh, this week, they may have seen Tower of Madness. It's been kind of splashing all over uh, the media right now. Yeah, definitely. That's one I got to play at Dice Tower Con. I had a ton of fun. I also <laughs> think I think I won as well, which helps. But I, it was so much fun. I remember you helped me out with some of the uh, the judging for the final round of the contest I was running. And then, but you're, the reason I really stopped by is because your game looks so cool on the table. That giant tower and all the stuff, the tentacles coming out. And it's like, oh, I've got to play this. And so I had a ton of fun uh, oh, okay. playing that one for sure. But going back to something you said just a moment ago, of defining your niche, of saying, yeah. this is who I'm going to be, especially as a company. Now, maybe as a game designer, you can be a little bit more, you know, kind of all over the place and, and you can kind of create uh, this kind of game. Be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have a, a more, a bigger portfolio than just like one niche. But as a company, I think there's so much value in saying, this is who I am. Because that way, your customers, they know who you are. They know what to expect. They're, they're not going to be disappointed thinking. It's kind of like uh, many years ago when Adam Sandler did that, uh, that, drama that dramatic movie punch drunk love i think is the name of it yeah i remember a very good friend of mine rented it and he went the first like half hour wondering why he hadn't laughed yet like what is like what is wrong with this yeah. is something wrong with me i thought this is gonna be a comedy it's adam sandler I, there's no jokes i don't understand and I, I remember him like talking to me about it the next day he's like yeah it just wasn't funny and i was like it wasn't supposed to be oh okay now I get, but like people expected that and so like if they can expect your company to be a certain type of game a certain kind of way i think it goes a long way especially in today's market because there's there's a million games out there and so have you found that to be super helpful just kind of defining your customer base and like you kind of get these raving fans that are with you year after year after year the answer is absolutely and it's always a double-edged sword okay so uh i'll, I'll answer that as as fully as i can yeah. um exactly what you said has been the case um because my games are so focused on a a running vibe where I think, you know, I, I give people permission to act badly <laughs> right. and have a good time doing it. Yeah. Um, and if you kind of, you know, are open to that, and there are plenty of people, by the way, who detest backstabbing games. But 
you enter a social contract when you sit down. And if you all say, yeah, we get it and we know what we're in for and the expectation is set, then, yeah, you know, if you love that game, chances are you are going to love the other stuff I have to offer. Um, And what I found was that um, if I had built a fan and typically I, I built most of my fans at conventions because people would sit down and we didn't just like, you know, sell games. We created entertainment at the booth. You know, when you sat down with us, you were playing with your friends and family because we invited you and wrapped you, our, our arms around you and you felt all the happy goodness and all the nasty backstabbing at the same time. And right. you had a real experience. Um, they came back again and again and, I know so many of our fans have bought almost every single one of our games and they may have their favorites, but they've appreciated the, you know, some aspect of, of most of them. Mm-hmm. Um, now that said, it is a double edged sword. So while it definitely built a very dedicated fan base, it's a polarizing place to be. As I mentioned, not everyone digs that kind of thing, you know, um, so I had nothing else to offer people who didn't like backstabbing games. Uh, it was, oh, then you probably don't dig this. You just head on to the next booth. <laughs> right. um, and, and that's fine because, you know, I, I planted the flag and I, I knew who I was going to appeal to and who I wasn't. Um, as I grew, that that would end up showing me the the darker side of that um you know, down the road when I tried to step outside of that box just to try to expand and grow the shoulders a little bit and found out how much of a narrow corner I really put myself in. Um, but, um, but no, for, for 14 years, we were hardcore all about the backstab and proud of it. And it worked great for us. Yeah, and now you also have, I don't know if it's an imprint or, like, or a sister company, it's Smirk and Laughter, right? Is that, is that kind of something that was born out of this problem? Well, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So that that is a brand that just launched this year. And um, this is the first time uh, this year that I'm doing this full time. So 14 years of doing it along with my very demanding marketing day job, um, where I did this from like nine to midnight. Right. Um, now I'm doing it full time. And I really need to have a game for everyone. Mm-hmm. I can't really just serve niche, but I couldn't I couldn't degrade what I built. I couldn't water it down. So, yeah, I created an imprint that uh, could live side by side and have some synergies, but that had very different kinds of offerings. So um, interesting, though, Smirk and Laughter is really dedicated towards, I would say, like a casual games that create some kind of an emotional response at the table. Um, that's, I think, what I what I love about any game that I create. Um, I absolutely love and respect a lot of games, a lot of heavy euros, a lot of pushing your cubes across the board. But what I build, what I take some pride in and in putting out in the marketplace are, are games that, that stir the emotion and create some kind of a memorable thematic experience at the table. And I think that is now the kind of total sum of my brand with, still having the backstab as well as now kind of this multi rainbow of other emotions I can tap into with smirk and laughter. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Hey, let's get more into the take that genre. Let's, let's yeah. just start off. Give me a good working definition. If someone says take that, or if Kurt covert says a take that game, 
What does that mean exactly? So I think there's a difference between take that mechanics and take that game. Okay. Um, but broadly, a take that game is one where part of your objectives uh, or avenue t towards a goal is to um, to pull down your opponent in some way and hinder them. Yeah. Uh, whatever their best laid plans are, find a way to spoil it. So it's a spoiler game. Uh, you are you are trying to either through um, direct combat or some kind of sneaky, underhanded um, thing they don't even see coming, where you're laying a trap for them. Um, and and that's probably like the best, the best way to describe the emotional benefit is the laying of the trap and watching them fall into it. And I think that is where you get the joy and where you get the, ah, damn you. So, um, and both sides of that, as well as the laughter that comes after, is what that mechanic is is all about. Yeah, definitely. Now, this is something you mentioned a moment ago, is there's a lot of people who have kind of a love-hate relationship with Take That Games, Take That Mechanisms. We'll start off with the love side. What do you think the appeal is to, to, to people for these types of games? Um, the appeal is... I think there's a certain uh, certain cathartic element to it that is uh, true in human nature, and the um, <laughs> of of all uh, of all folks, uh, the Germans had uh, an actual word for it, um, which, which is uh, Schattenfreude. Are you familiar with this? No. Uh. Okay. The actual definition of of the word Schattenfreude in the German language is uh, to laugh at someone else's misfortune. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And it's it's a it's a concept in in the culture, and there is like you know when 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 we watch a, a a slapstick movie and someone gets you know nailed in the face you know with something they didn't see coming, uh, or uh, Macaulay Culkin is like setting up all the traps for the bad guys in the house. I mean, there is there is a joy in the human experience for for building and plotting and having it go off at someone else's expense. Um, it can be a tragedy if you treat it that way. Yeah. It can be a comedy if you understand the broader picture. And so much of what makes, makes it work or not work is the expectation that players have when they sit down. So, Diplomacy can ruin um, friendships forever. Right. You in, you invest an entire day of your life um, working with people, forming partnerships, and then in the last 15 minutes, someone cuts your throat and just ruins your entire day. There's almost no forgiving that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't come back from that. Um, but if you... And, and so often, like, the betrayal... If, if you really, if you really don't see it coming, if there's no expectation it's going to happen, that's when it hurts the hardest. And the amount of investment of time that you put into those plans will equate to how upset you are going to be. But if you all sit down and you know that 
a backstab mechanic isn't just like a little side thing to annoy you, that this is the point of the game, right. is to do terrible things to each other. I'm going to be doing it to you. You are going to be doing it to me. Who can get the better shot in quickest or best becomes where, you know, one up and shut kind of thing. But um, I think it's it's that social contract that you make when you sit down to play an actual backstabbing game where that's the point and the thrust of the game that actually elevates it more to an art form rather than an annoyance. Yeah, definitely. And kind of the balancing that out, that's something I want to talk about in just a minute, making sure you don't have too much or not, you know, under, you're not overdoing it or underdoing it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I think you bring up some really good points. First of all, what, for whatever reason, watching somebody fall down or watching somebody get hit in the growing is hilarious. And it's always hilarious. As long as they don't die. If they die, it's like, well, okay, that's kind of sad. It's a tragedy now. Yeah, right. (laughs) But if if it's a skateboarder and he's like grinding a rail, the skateboard flies out and he like crotch crotches it all the way down the next twenty you know feet. It's like that's hilarious. Did he die? No. Okay, let's all laugh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. My wife sent me a a message on Facebook earlier today. It's like this real quick uh, video of this woman that was doing like a mountain bike kind of thing. And the what my wife sent me was, "Don't you wish we were this adventurous? Because we laugh all the time how we don't really go out of the house. We like play games and hang out at home. We like we we don't like doing stuff like like going outside and hanging, you know, hiking and all that kind of thing." So she sent me, this, sent me this video, and this woman's, like, going down a hill, and she's not having a good time. Like, she is, like, something bad's going to happen. And all of a sudden, like, her bike just kind of goes sideways, and she, like, hits her face on a tree, and it just clotheslines her off the bike. Oh. And uh, and the next scene, she's, like, okay, and she's smiling, has this huge bruise on her face. It's, like, this is hilarious. And the way the guy did the video, he, like, replayed it over and over and over again in, like, fast motion, <laughs> slow motion, and, like, just her, this lady getting clotheslined by this tree off the off the bike. Like that's hilarious. Well, that's a take that game. It's like when you can yeah. have these moments of clotheslining your friend off the bike. And yeah, for him, it wasn't a great moment. It was getting you know beaten up in the face. But for everybody else, it's hilarious. And so right. if you can, and, pull- and the fun part for that person who actually took it in the face yeah. is now they are planning your demise. Absolutely. And as soon as it goes off, it that revenge is going to be yep. even sweeter now. Yeah, just wait till next <laughs> round. You know, that's the whole thing. Yep. Oh, you going to get me now? Oh, you get me now. Wait till next round. That's the great thing yep. about these games. Is, you know, if, if done well, then you're you're stabbing me in the back, but I'm also stabbing you. And so it's this really cool circle. And I think what you, you brought up a point earlier, it, it allows people to be bad. Like, it's one yeah. thing people love about RPGs. You can be this, like, lawful, evil character, or this neutral, chaotic chaotic right. evil character that you would never do these things in real life you would never stab your friends in the back you would never like in diplomacy you would you would never do that in real life hopefully where you like set up your friend to just totally get his entire country blown up but in these games you can and it, it kind of yeah. lets people be someone they're not in in normal life and i think that's one of the great things about games you can kind of have these experiences that are so different from the normal day to day kind of grind of things and i think that's one of the things that people find the most surprising when they they meet me and hang out with me for a while. Uh, because, <laughs> You're not a terrible person. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, quite honestly, I, uh, it, and may, maybe it's simply the, the, the stark contrast that has them say these things, but I have I've heard it said of me more than once, you're like the nicest guy in the industry. How <laughs> could you possibly make these games? Right. And I, I think... It's just the contrast of how terrible some of the games are and, you know, contrasted my actual personality, which, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy, I'd say. Um, but do I love laughing at the misfortune of people as they get lined up and, and nailed? It's just great. <laughs> I just love it. And what I honestly, 
a good friend of mine, Justin, who who um, who ended up really kind of growing the business with me. He was a still is a great great friend of mine. Um, he um, he was always like the the enemy, um, and and I his. Mm-hmm. So when we would sit together, uh, you know, and play test one of our games. Um, there were probably other players there, and we would occasionally, you know, hit them with something. But honest, it was always a grudge match between him and I. And the fun part was watch was trying to get him enraged. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then knowing he was coming right back at me. <laughs> right, definitely. Now, here's just a random question because you saying that actually made me think of the reason Rob Davio created Risk Legacy. Like, what if what if the game could remember the way we remember? Because like, I remember, last game, you stabbed me in the back, so this game, I'm going to get you. Like, what if the game could remember? Nah. Now, have you ever thought about a take-that legacy-style game where the game kind of remembers who has stabbed whom, and it kind of carries that stuff forward? Um, so, interestingly enough, and, and, and this, is, this is a bit a peek under the, the tarp a little bit, <laughs> uh, it had been suggested in a recent brainstorming uh, when we were at Gen Con that Cutthroat Caverns yeah. might be that game if we can devise a proper way to do it so it's something that we are toying with in our in our little heads just now yeah that'd be so cool i don't you don't have to go any further i don't want you to give any scoops or anything away right now but i think a lot of people would get on board for that because like you're saying we remember who stabbed us but it'd be really cool (laughs) for the game to also remember and to kind of carry that experience forward now let's look at the other side of it that's, that's those are the reason people love this stuff. Why do people hate it? I mean, there's some people you say take that and they will give you a zero out of ten on Board Game Geek without even playing the game, right? Yes. Just automatically, you know, right off the bat. So, what is it about these games that people just hate? What is it? Very often, it's because they had a bad experience at a particular session of a game. Um, very often, that game had a take-that mechanic without being a take-that game. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and that's why I kind of separate the two. A, a misplaced take-that mechanic can feel like a cheat. Mm-hmm. It feels like I just got robbed of my very calculated win. And some, some board gamers, it's all about, can I out-math the game? Right. Now, that gamer wants to play a, a logic-driven, can I beat the puzzle of the game? Um, they have no time for for randomness, and certainly not to have someone pull out the rug in some, something that feels like a cheat for the game. Yeah. But that is a misplaced take that mechanic in a game that doesn't need it um, or sh- shouldn't have it. When the game, at its core, is all about what you'll do, you know, w- what you'll uh, do to win. Um, and everyone has equal opportunity to screw each other over throughout the game, that's a different animal. Now, there are some players, however, that just feel like, you know what, I don't like that kind of negative vibe. Some people are just like, you know, that's not really why I sit down to game. I you know I sit down to be to be social, and, you know, I, I, I'm not comfortable doing bad things there i've seen some people play sit down at my games and i say okay well who would you like to attack or do this terrible thing to and they're like oh oh i don't i don't want to do anything (laughs) well that's kind of what the game is about right so and but some people are are just that's not that's not why they came to sit down to to play so i don't I, i think in some people they just enjoy 
and can appreciate it for what it is. And for some, it's just kind of an alien concept and not really why they they love gaming. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've played several games where it seems like the designer was trying to get some more player interaction. They were trying to make it a little bit more engaging amongst the players. And so their answer was to throw in these random cards that were, had take that mechanic or mechanisms in them. And it wasn't to take that game. And so, yeah. like you're saying, and, and so, you, like, there have been several times where I was like, I'm, I'm about to win. Oh, man, I'm, I'm looking around like, okay, my strategy was the best, and, and this is going really well. And all of a sudden, somebody plays a card, and, and I get third place. And it's like, huh, well, that's, uh, I don't want to play this game anymore. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Because, like you're saying, that social contract, we sat down not agreeing in the social contract to play a take that game. We agreed to play this other game that maybe is a Euro game or whatever. And all of a sudden, this take that element totally ruined the fun because we I wasn't expecting it. I didn't, oh, I didn't even know that card was a, a thing. There's only two of them in the whole game, you know, or right. something like that. And so, you know, I, I feel like that's a, a really good point. If you're playing a game with take that elements is different than playing a take that game. And if it's not handled well, it can leave a really bad taste in people's mouth to where they hear take that and they go, oh, no, this game must be terrible because I played that one game way back when that had to take that card in it and I hated it. And so I think yeah. that's a really good thing for designers to think about. If you're trying to add interaction in your game, Maybe a take that card is not the best way to do it. Like that might not be uh, really accomplishing the goal that you've set out for the experience that that your game that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, uh, and very often, um, once I started accepting uh, designs from the outside, people would pitch me games, um, and they knew that you know I stood for backstabbing games, so they'd show me a game that had a backstab mechanic but wasn't a backstabbing game, yeah. and I would have to kind of guide people and let them know kind of the difference. Um, it's not really enough to have a way to mess someone over. It has to be central to the thrust of the game. Otherwise, it becomes something that no one wants to play. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's go into balancing. How do you balance that out to where there's just enough to create this really fun experience, and you don't have it where it's just constant, right? Because if, if you have a game where no one can ever get ahead because you're always being pulled down, well, the game never ends, right? And so you kind of have to balance out people, people being able to get ahead enough and, and then pulled back a little bit but to eventually end the game and trigger the end game. But you also don't want to do it under, because we're talking about like right now, if you don't do it yeah. enough, then it's just like this random thing. It's like, well, this, this is, doesn't even make sense. It's not even fun. So where is that place in the middle that's like just enough stabbing your friends in the back? So... It varies with every single game, and I approach games, I would say, fairly differently than a lot of other designers that I know. Um, it is not uncommon for a lot of designers to get very involved in the math and the percentages of probability, and, you know, I, I honest to God, have never examined the probabilities in my games. Mm -hmm. um, I gut it. It's all gut check. Yeah. Um, I am looking to create a behavioral model. And when I see the behaviors I want coming through, I know I've got it right. If the behaviors are coming too often or not often enough, I know that I need to make adjustments. So um, so really, I'm I'm looking at the gameplay experience from a user standpoint to make sure I've got the balance right for what I'm trying to build. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's talk about kind of your process then. You're, you're kind of getting into the process thing. Let's talk about a game like Cutthroat Caverns, maybe your most yeah. well-known. What was the process for that game, and maybe some other games too, of you really creating this experience? Like, how did it, how did it begin? Like, you had this idea, like, I want to do D&D, &D, but I want to stab my friend in the back right as he grabs the treasure. Like, is that kind of how it started, or, or where did it come from? I tell you what, I... 
and 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 I have I have told this story before, but it, it's it's a good one, and it is absolutely true. I, Cutthroat Caverns was born of my actual role playing experience um, back in the eighties when I was in high school. Um, I had a very unusual D and D group at the time. Um, it was me and six women. <laughs> yeah. That we were all... super unusual. That's awesome. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you're very, very different. Yep. And uh, so we were all in the drama club yep. and uh, we invited others. But in the end, the guys just didn't didn't gel for them. So they left and we just the rest of us. So um, so we played, you know, all through high school. Now, I think because most of the players were one, you know, drama kids and most mostly women um there was a certain vibe to our game it was very tolkien-esque um very lawful good man if you found a a magic item by god it went to the player who could wield it best right right there was no squabbling over coins or items or things like we were a happy adventuring you know party and so imagine my horror then as I go to college and a uh, few guys on the on the floor are like, hey, you want to join our D&D game? I was like, yeah, awesome. Sounds great. Da, 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 sit down for our first session. They have all rolled these horrific characters. There, there's chaotic neutral. There's, you know, evil characters. There, two of them are assassins, you know, and all of a sudden. As I start seeing things play out, I'm I'm just taken with this horror of like, oh my god, there is absolutely nothing that this DM can throw out that is worse than what could happen from these guys. <laughs> I have to watch more about what they're doing than this DM. And the DM was like must have had a background like like I did, because he was all about about the role playing and the you know teamwork, and the players were not having it. And doing horrible things to his NPCs and each other. I was like, oh my, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. That feeling of horror is something that as I was starting to sit and design games, I was like, I wanna I wanna capture that moment. I wanna capture that moment of horror and then extend it throughout the entire length of a game. It's all about dungeoning and kill stealing and what you will what you're willing to do to gain that ultimate relic of power. But if you don't work together, you could all die. Right. But if you don't betray them, you're never going to win. Yeah. And that was the thrust of the game. And it's just – it's a beautiful combination. Um, every every single um, creature in that game – and, you know, there are 25 in the box and you play nine randomly sorted at any time. Um, each single one of them is unique and they all create a behavioral funnel. They are dangling some sort of carrot that incentivizes you to misbehave to the disaster of everyone. Yeah. However, you're going to get this benefit. And to watch people fight over these scraps to get the prestige, to land their blow last and you know trip someone else in order to do it. It is amazing the lengths of terrible things people will do to be on top. Um, and then all of a sudden, they'll be like, oh, oh no, with this creature? Stop, guys. All right. 
Let's just forget what happened last round. <laughs> we got to work together now, yeah. or we're all going to be dead. And right. I love the balance of those two things. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the, the few semi-cooperative games I've ever seen that actually works, and it actually makes sense, and it, it kind of the theme and the experience all comes together, and it it, it all works together really, really well. There's a lot of, a lot of semi-co-op games are like, okay, I, I don't know why you're doing this. Like, it doesn't make sense. But this game, it made a lot of sense, and it made a lot of people mad. But it again, yeah. that social contract, you knew going in that your friend was going to try to trip you and then stab you in the back of your face and so it's just part of it right and quite honestly like you know i so it it was probably a combination of that or you know my original experience but also like lord of the rings like boromir right absolutely this is this this is the story of boromir Mm -hmm. why did he end up like you know trying to betray the group and suddenly turning on one of the players because the power of this relic was like so great the need to have it outweighed all of his other morals and honestly a lot of these games are kind of small morality plays yeah um and i think when people like take a step back from like the the active you know experience of playing you get back into the psychology of of, of why and how do we enjoy these games um it lets you take a, a, a different look at kind of the human psyche and experience it in a different way in a very controlled environment where, you know, yeah, I, I don't if, if I'm at work and I do something horrible to try to get ahead or something, you know, I mean, that's that's heinous and horrible. But I've always thought about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Because that guy should go down because <laughs> he is a jerk. Right. So now it, it, it allows you to. um to, to get in there and, and live out your little fantasy of what you wanted to do to that guy but never would, and therefore there is a little catharticness to it. Yeah, definitely. And going back to something you said a moment ago, it, it tells a really good story, too. If you think about Lord of the Rings when Boromir did that, it's like, oh, no, I can't believe this happened. This is terrible. Man, this is some good reading. you know. Or when your favorite right. character on, on your favorite TV show, you're, you're watching a really good movie or something, and all of a sudden they turn. It's like, oh, no. No, and like it gets it like makes your hair stand up and you're angry and yep. you know? it creates these really cool moments and these really cool stories that people are talking about forever because people don't say, "Hey, you remember that time I rolled those dice?" Or remember that time I played that card? Yes. No, they say, "Hey, remember that time you were about to win and then I tripped you and you fell into the dragon and you died and then I grabbed the thing?" Yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, <laughs> that's how we yes. that's how we talk. We tell stories. Yeah, we don't we don't tell game mechanisms. We tell stories, and so. Yeah, and and that's very important. E- even in the smirk and laughter line, yeah. I think it's super important. Um, I, I actually judge a game that I'm about to publish based on when people get up from the table and walk away. What is the story they're telling? Yep. That that to me it ends up being the hook. That's the memorable bit that allows you to enjoy the game, get deeply entrenched into its theme, and really. Uh, that that's now it's entertainment and those people who 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 didn't take place you know didn't take uh, t- didn't take part in that last backstabbing move they just watched it well they're the audience members just like in the movie yeah. they're like oh my god he just did that to him oh. <laughs> so I mean, it's it's all of that and 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 more yeah for sure now what does playtesting one of these games look like now you're talking about how you you love like watching the people at the table and kind of their experience but like tell me a little bit more as far as the more detailed process you have of, of play testing one of these games to know hey we're really hitting on all cylinders here um so i i will uh when i first like put uh you know the first prototype together i i make a lot of 
guesses, generalizations, gut feel. Here's what I think will work. And um, I might even do one game with uh, close friends or family if they're willing. Um, just to like see if mechanically it's flowing the way I want. But the truth is that I really can't tell until I put it into the wild. And by that, I mean, I need to play with players who have no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, if my baby's ugly, I need to hear it. Right. And uh, someone who doesn't know you will help you understand that and why. Um, so I will take I'll go to game stores. I go to conventions, uh, I'll go to board game groups, you know, wherever I can find some folks that are willing to sit down and try something that isn't printed Um talk to them about, you know, what I'm doing. Sometimes I'll even tell them what I'm testing for. Other times I'll just, hey, let's try this thing. And sometimes I'll play. Sometimes I will watch. And again, most of my designs are founded on creating flows of behaviors. And I will, I will see people's faces light up as they discover Oh, oh, here's how I can do a thing. Yeah. Oh. Or they'll just like look at the cards and they'll just start like laughing like, <laughs> oh, oh my God. Really? Okay. <laughs> um, all of that is now cues that I'm, I'm touching the right, the right hot spots. Um, and then all of a sudden something will fall apart a little bit. Uh, there'll be an out-of-place mechanic. There'll be something... Uh, that didn't quite uh, get the reaction that I wanted to, and I'll know I'll have to go back and and tweak and reset. Um, well, now one of one of the things that was a um, a great example of of one of these was uh, when I developed Nevermore. Um, now Nevermore is a a card drafting game um, where you're you're passing cards around the table. You know, three, two, one, doubling your final hand. It's got poison cards in it, cards you don't want. Uh, because they're going to subtract away from the, the the power of the hand that you have. Um, in this game, it had health points, like so many you know take that games do. And um, for years, one of the staples of the take that game was player elimination. Um, so Wiz War was a, a huge one for that. Um, now, while it is a staple, while it is a natural outcome of a very aggressive style game. Um, certainly that has fallen out of favor. No one wants to be on the sidelines during a game. And um, in game design these days, it's really not tolerated unless it's happening right at the very end. Like Cutthroat Caverns probably can still get away with it because, yeah, you could kill someone in round two, but you just really severely limited anyone's chance to win. Right. So it forces you to like wait until the last round or two to try to off somebody. That's okay. I don't mind sitting out for five, ten minutes, I suppose. Um, But by and large, I started noticing, uh, you know, Nevermore was originally conceived as a player elimination game. You lost all your health, you're out. It didn't work. Hmm. Um, It was very clear, very early in testing, that it was entirely possible if certain sets of cards, if people pass the wrong cards and let someone collect a huge mass of attack cards, someone could be gone in a round one or round two situation. And that that's horrible. No one wants to play that game. I don't want to play that game. 
Um, so I had to like drop back and figure out, okay, so that's, this game is now broken officially. How do I fix it? Um, and that's where I hit upon, um, which is, it's now the go-to mechanic for me for a lot of my, my games, which is instead of player elimination, player transformation. Okay. Um, have a meaningful penalty for dying, right? Where normally you'd, you'd have to leave the game. Give them a meaningful penalty. Let them keep playing as they completely change how they play. Don't let them play by the regular mechanics. They have a new game that they're playing, and it's probably directly opposed to everyone else at the table. Yeah. But there's a, there is a psychological power to being that player. So now, yes, I can win if I'm able to somehow figure out how to do goal X, which is very, very hard because it is a penalty for me to be in this position. But I can potentially still win. But my joy right now, as I try to figure that out, is tearing these guys down. Yeah. And that that change from play state, from like active player to spoiler, where I still got a a, a chance to win, but I I get the I can now be the underdog. I can be the um the villain in the story. I can be whatever it is, however we cast it, I've got a new role to play and it's just as fun. And sometimes for some people, even more fun than the base game state. Um, so I came up with the idea that um, the players in Nevermore would not lose their victory points. They'd keep them. But half of the cards would no longer work for them. And if they scored the most of them, they'd be pecking for one point of damage, just like knocking down the other players. Whoever came in second, they was going to get poked right in the eye. Um, uh, at the same time, they could still earn, you know, light magic and dark magics, again, to mess with other people. But also white magics are going to help them transform back into their human form so they can win. Um, and they've got this whole new hand that they're going to go for. It changes how they draft. They're going to take all their attack cards. Oh, here, guys, have them. Go ahead and whack each other silly with them. Meanwhile, what I'm looking for is X, Y, or Z. So I think when you give a player a different state and gives them the, it, there's this fun, unique power and thrill to, to playing this new role that enhances the game where it had previously with player elimination, it was to its great detriment. Um, it certainly... Uh, transformed Nevermore into the game that it is and eventually suggested its theme. Um, this act of transformation from human to Raven uh, was one that the artist uh, captured so well on the cover of the box. Um, there's just a Raven's head with a single human eye. It's the last vestige of their humanity as they're about to lose it all. Um, and um, and that really just describes the the, the game completely. Yeah, for sure. And you, you really did a good job of this with Tower of Madness. And this is something that I experienced yes, yeah. at Dice Tower Con, right? I was winning. I had a pretty substantial lead. I had I, Just because of the rolls of the dice, I had a pretty good lead. And I was in first place. And I was like, okay, here we go. You know, I'm winning. And I was trying to, you know, guard my points and do different things and try to hold on to the victory. And then somebody else at the table did some things, played some cards, and drove me insane. And so I lost all my victory like, points. No! Right. And I, now I went from winning to, like, not even on the same team with you guys. And that, but then my very next thought was, I'm going to destroy you all. 
Okay, I'm going. I'm going. All right, that's fine. That's fine. You want to do that? All right, let's let's play that game. <laughs> and right. I ended up winning anyway because I was able to kind of do some things that pulled enough marbles out of the tower, and Cthulhu came back. And so I went from winning as an investigator to now I won as a cultist. But it, I right. had fun. I had fun on both sides, and everybody else at the table had a lot of fun. It's just kind of the way the game played out. And so you bring you bring up a great point. If you can have a take that game that doesn't have the player elimination, but actually as players lose, they get an opportunity to win. They get to change their strategy, get to change things maybe midway or three-quarters of the way through the game. Oh, that's a really cool way to do things and give players new choices and new things to, to think about, new ways to play. It's, it's, a, it's a much better way to do it than just, oh, I got these cards played on me and now I can't win. Now I'm out of the game. Or now I'm, maybe I'm still in the game, but I can't win, so I don't care about the game, which is maybe right. worse. That might be worse than just being able to get up and go get a soda or go get another slice of pizza and be like, oh, you guys play. It might be worse. Now I have to still sit here and play these cards out, but I can't win. Uh, right. that's, that's no good. And so that's a really cool way to handle that. Uh, now, any other like, just kind of nuggets of wisdom you've, you've learned from some of these games that you've worked on? Um. Man, a lot of them are are pretty specific to uh, to games, but I think that any time that you can ratchet up tension in your game, um, you create an emotional lever. Yeah, and um, you can use that lever in a lot of different ways. So um, that lever, even if it's just you against the game, um, you can. Um, you can reward and punish people for actions that they take to create behaviors at the table that lead the game into predictable ways and avenues. Um, and I, as I've mentioned, so many of my games at their heart are really designed to um, create not just one path. There are multiple paths you can take, but predictable trends that people will follow based on observe behavior of, of mankind who people are and um and also how you're particularly if the reward is great enough they're going to take that avenue because they're you just drop the carrot um so always be very mindful of your your reward and punishment systems in a game because that is how you create not just the vibe of the game but the consistency from game to game to game to game as you play it cutthroat caverns i don't care how many people you play it with and who they are it's going to lead to the exact same kind of experience no matter what because the mechanics of the games the cards the reward systems are all geared to an anticipated way that people will behave given all those uh, all those constructs and the joy of it comes from seeing the different people react to those different stimulus in slightly different, unique ways. And, um, and honestly, I can't tell you how many times I have played my games. Now I've been doing this for 15 years, hex, hex, cutthroat caverns. I mean, I've played them gajillions of times and people have even said to me, you know, well, I mean, so you go to Gen Con, I mean, someone says, well, you want to play, you know, can you show me Hex Hex or Cutthroat Caverns? You know, like, you play that so many times, it's got to be, you know, like, oh, really? Oh, okay. No, I love it every single time because while the game is similar every time through because I built it for consistency, 
the audience changes, their reactions change, even if they're predictable in nature. It's the thrill of seeing all those emotions get churned up and how people will light up or curse, you know, in, in different ways that brings new joy and excitement every time I sit and play this game. Yeah. That's awesome. Now let's change gears just a little bit. Now you, you have yeah. a very much a marketing background. And so yeah. what would you say is the best way to market one of these types of games, especially in a, you know, if you have a, take that games where people are like, Oh, I hate that. Like how, how do you market it? And so that people don't just think, take that mechanics. They think, Oh, this is a take that game. So, well, first of all, I, the, the best way to market any game is one-to-one. Hmm. Um, first of all, it's a word of mouth, uh, industry. So honestly, being on podcasts like this, you know, it's, it's, it's hugely important for marketing. Um, but my presence at shows, you know, I think a lot of people think publishers go to conventions so that they can make money. And the truth is that's not why we're there. Um, the shows are so expensive. Um, for years, I either lost money or broke even and breaking even was a goal. Yeah. Um, but I was there because that's the best marketing. Being there, sharing with someone, seeing their face light up, and knowing that moment where they just the, the the switch just triggered, they saw like, oh, oh, I see how this, oh, oh, I know exactly who I want to share this with. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I can't wait till I get home and 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 we're gonna roll this out. That's that experience is really the best way to market and sell a game. I don't have to sell it to you. I just have to show you the cool bits, and it sells itself. Yeah. And conventions and sitting down to play it. That's the best way to to do that. Um, but um, oh, I may have missed a, a piece of the question now. No, how do you market Take That Game specifically? Oh, so specifically Take That Game. Again, um, I think so often it is making sure people know what we're offering yeah. and the fun that comes of it. Um, very often as I, someone new comes up, um, and especially with my booth, I know I kind of have to screen a little bit. I'll give like the the little 10 second hook on Cutthroat Caverns. Um, and if their eyes don't light up with, oh, r- really? <laughs> ah, then, I, you know, there I know I can keep on going. And like, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound like me. It's like, okay, well, thanks. You know, so you can kind of even find out, you know, if they're generally open to that kind of a game, just because they react to like the the, the 10 second hook. And and if I've got them in a 10-second hook, by the time they sit and experience it, very often, you know, I know they're going to take one home because um, I deliver on the expectation. Right. And that, I think, is so important in any game. If you set up an expectation for someone, you got to deliver. Um and if you have a special special thing that you're delivering, you have to set the expectation. So it's it's both ways. Now, a lot of licensed games uh, suffer from this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, it's going to be, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's going to be the Labyrinth game. Okay, terrific. Well, if I love the movie Labyrinth, this better feel like the moments I had as I reminisce and think about this movie, I, I want to be in that world. Right. And if I don't feel that way, this is a pasted on theme and you know, this was not what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And of course the reverse is true. So backstabbing games, 
I have to let you know exactly what you're in for, set the expectation, and then deliver on what I told you I was going to deliver on. And that's how that's how you market it. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes that's the same thing in any business, right? Undersell, over deliver. Right. And and make sure that whatever the expectation is, that you not you not just meet it, but you go far beyond it. Yes. Right? And that yeah. that's with everything. Whether whether you're you're selling hamburgers or you're selling board games, you want to make sure you're you're kinda of doing that. Well, Kurt, do you have any kind of final advice? Like anything that maybe we hadn't covered exactly or just kinda of in general, if somebody's working on a take that game right now or they're thinking about it, or maybe they're they're hearing this podcast like, oh, I can make one of those kind of games, what would you tell them? Well, the first thing is, if you got a great one that everyone asks at the end, uh, when is this available? It's time to come show me. <laughs> <That's> a great <laughs> point. <laughs> um, but um, no, I, I I think we've covered a, a lot of the a lot of the broad points. Always set your expectation. Always deliver or over deliver not on the expectation. Make sure it's not just a mechanic, but it's the core thrust of the game. Make sure the balance of your reward system and your uh, your punishment system um, deliver the behaviors that you want. Know the behaviors that you want, and and I think that's probably the the toughest thing to like like whiteboard. Like if I had to like you know what behaviors do I want? That's gonna it's really hard to know that right? right. So many of these things, just think about the theme. Put yourself in the world of that character that player in that world in the story that you're telling and i think you you mentioned that the narrative of your of your game is critical in setting up a take that game yeah. because if it's hard to have an abstract take that game right <laughs> um because your square your just hit me in the triangle i don't like what well, it doesn't make sense yeah, like it needs a th- right. thematic reason so once you've got your theme you've got to immerse yourself into it Understand, like almost like a um, an improv, um, a role playing improv or a dramatic improv, uh, act and react. That's what really take that games are all about. It's the impulsive react and you know act back and forth. Um, it's the meta game and knowing that if I do something terrible. You want revenge. How do I give you the satisfaction of that revenge? How do I keep all the players generally in balance? What risks can befall all of you if you go too far? Um, these are all questions as you set up the narrative um, that you want to make sure you've got in balance so that when you come away from the game, you weren't just playing a game. You lived a story. And that story, just like if it was on a movie screen, you want to have a satisfying ending, a satisfying experience, something that pulls you through the entire game and wraps up nicely at the end. Um, even if five of you are like, damn you, but I'll get you next time. And one guy's like, ah, ha, 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 you know, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, oftentimes like backstabbing games, like it's almost like the villain wins a little bit. Right. Um, so, so think about, think about the narrative and, and how to tell the story best. Yeah, for sure. Well, Hey, we're about to head over into a bonus round where Kurt is going to give me the best advice he has after spending 15 years in the industry. Real excited to hear about that. Before we close things out, Kurt, you got any, any projects you're working on or anything you want to tell people about? Oh man. Yeah. Um, 
so we've got a bunch of stuff uh, coming down the pipe. Um, most of it coming now for for 2019. Um, but I can tell you uh, right now, Tower of Madness and Before There Were Stars, which is an amazing storytelling game um, where you're you're creating um, mythologies of your people. It's all creation myths. Those are both landing September 5th uh, at your local retailers. Koi, which is a beautiful light strategy game. Uh, it's gorgeous to look at as well. That is coming uh, probably end of September, early October. Uh, Roll for Your Life Candyman is um, a new speed dice version of our classic Run for Your Life Candyman, uh, where you're ripping the limbs off of gingerbread men as you uh, <laughs> beat them senseless with a candy cane. Um, that is going to be for October. And by the way, Cutthroat Caverns has an app in development nice. where you can uh, you can play the game uh, you know with these AIs that simulate players that you would normally meet at the table. Um, so all of that is coming as well as a bunch of new stuff for next year. Awesome. That's really cool. Well, Kurt, man, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And good luck with all those really awesome games that are coming out soon. And good luck with everything else you got going on right now. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?